Hello and welcome to Speak to a Lawyer. I'm your host, Avi Charney. Join us on this podcast as we profile leading lawyers in all areas of law. As a younger lawyer, I witnessed that massive gap between junior and senior lawyers. I wondered how the best lawyers in the city reached the pinnacle of their practices. Leaders of firms, consistently rated best lawyers by their peers. Innovators in law, game changers, precedent setters. I'm considering them professional superheroes with careers to emulate. How did they get to where they are today? That's what I'm here to find out. Whether you are a younger lawyer yourself, law student or bystander interested in law, I'm sure that you'll benefit from and enjoy the gems of wisdom we seek to uncover here. As my first guest today, Donald Carr. He was called to the bar in 1951, and I'm going to venture to say that anyone listening to this podcast was probably not alive when Donald started practicing law. Just really a fascinating conversation from a real legend, someone who's been practicing law for, you know, going on 70 years. It's just uh, unbelievable and, and so much we can learn from. So starting at the very beginning, Donald, welcome. Tell us, what was your first job in law? Working part-time and articling with my uncle, who had a very, very busy practice he was almost what you might consider a generalist. Uh, he did virtually everything. And um, he had, at that time, I think one young junior part. And uh, I um, articled with him. And when I was called to the bar, it was very natural for me to join him. And we formed the firm at that time called Cohen, Garfinkel, and Carr. And that was the beginning of... Um, of my actual practice. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, my uncle um, had a heart attack and passed away. Uh, we all thought uh, back then in 1951-52 uh, that he was uh, old. He was in fact about 62, which would never be considered old now. Mm -hmm. The result was that um, I uh, took over the practice and went into a partnership with a couple of uh, lawyers who had joined uh, our firm at that time. So it became uh, Cohen, Cass, and Fine. Your uncle was the Garfinkel. Jimmy Garfinkel uh, left just after I think I graduated, and he uh, went to Israel. Later on, he passed away. Okay. So what what happened with the car cash and fine? How long did that go on for? Um, Cohen car cash and fine existed doing virtually everything except criminal law, and we were not at all good at tax. <laughs> And then sometime subsequent, a friend of mine, Wolf Goodman, uh, who was in practice uh, with his father and with another two or three lawyers and was an expert, among other things, in tax, he and I had some discussions and the result of our discussions was the formation of Goodman and Carr. And when, when about was that? That's, that sounds like a big development. That was... If I recollect correctly, correctly, uh, about 1965. Oh. And it's it's called Goodman and Carr. What happened to the other partners, if I may ask, the Cohen, Cass, Fine, the the other members? Were they on well, board? Well, um, Joseph Cass and Leonard Fine and Arthur Silver were with me, and they became part of Goodman and Carr. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you had, uh, sounds like you rounded out your practice with the tax component. Well, the practice is rounded out with a substantial tax component, but also other things, including uh, bankruptcy. Uh, Wolf Goodman's late father was a bankruptcy trustee, as well as being a lawyer. That was possible in those days. Mm -hmm. And um, we became a very, very broadly spread general firm uh, doing virtually everything and we brought into the firm uh, because we were deficient in litigation we brought into the firm at the outset as counsel Ben Zion Sishi mm -hmm. um, who 
was at that time practicing on his own. He was a South African, um, from South Africa originally, and uh, Ben um, remained as our counsel until he was appointed as a master of the Supreme Court. Well, so it, it sounds like it developed very quickly. Is, is that a type of model, do you think, that could you know, be replicated today? And maybe it's a, an opportunity to comment on you know, what it was like, you know, the legal industry in Toronto in the, in the 50s, 60s. I, you know, I don't know how many big firms were there, how competitive was it compared to today? You can paint a bit of a picture about uh, day-to-day uh, lawyering back then. In those early days, uh, I was doing litigation because, frankly, when I graduated or when I went into law school, in my view, was the only area of law where there was really a lawyer was if you were, in fact, a barrister. I soon gave that up for many, many reasons not the least of which that I uh, took um, the cases to heart and the loss was my loss rather than the client's loss. And uh, had I continued on, uh, I doubt that you would be speaking to me today. Thankfully you gave it up. I, I ended up in several areas over the years in which I purported to have some expertise and they were as broad as uh, landlord and tenant. Um, I did a tremendous amount of uh, shopping center lease um, items. As a matter of fact, I negotiated the very first percentage rent lease that had been um, set up in Canada, acting for a tenant in the first small shopping center where percentage rent was arranged. Maybe you could explain what a percentage lease is for those who perhaps don't know. Well, a, a percentage rent lease, it, it has been uh, for many, 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 many years the basic type of lease, um, retail commercial lease um, in North America. Um, it's a lease that calls for a minimum rent per square foot, and as against that minimum rent, a percentage of the gross sales that are conducted from the store are part of the rent, and so that the landlord benefited uh, with the increased business of the tenant. And um, that was a whole new thing in those days. Yeah. Uh, it has become absolutely uh, um, the regular thing, and um, it was interesting. So how, how did that uh, come about as, a, as being the first to do something? And I want to get to other firsts that you have in your career as well, but uh, starting with well, this. That first, that first has nothing to do with me. It was to do with the landlord. Because the landlord, uh, which was a company in those days well-known, but uh, unfortunately uh, did not last, called Principal Investments Limited. And they had heard uh, that in the United States, this uh, animal called uh, a percentage rent lease uh, was being negotiated. And they thought it would be a very good idea for them to import that into Canada. And so it happened that um, there was a particular tenant um, that occupied uh, shopping centers all across Canada for whom we acted. And um, whenever a shopping center went up uh, in a particular area, it was almost certain that our client would go in. So it just happened that this was a new shopping center and the client was going in, and so we had to work out the percentage of that. So right right time and right place and and sometimes circumstances just present themselves. Oh, yes. I think all of my life has been on that basis. Right, right. That's the way things roll sometimes. 
So I'm curious to know how, take your time, but how you got to the estate planning world and, you know, your practice now from the commercial leases you're just describing. So take us through that development. Well, um, I suppose the um, beginnings of the Concar Cash, Concar Cash and Sign, um, were a very generalized practice, as I mentioned. And in the course of that kind of practice, I was doing uh, all solicitors' work uh, once I got uh, out of the litigation end, and it was a very generalized practice, so that uh, we had um, reacted for partnerships, sole proprietorships, uh, companies, uh, we looked after um, wills and trusts. Um, we looked after a great deal of real estate, um, commercial as well as residential and uh, builders, and uh, it was a very, very, very eclectic practice. And when we moved into the Goodman Car situation, indeed, um, three of my the three of my partners who came with me moved into the real estate end. Uh, of Goodman & Carr's practice, and uh, I um, sort of moved from time to time uh, into um, corporate work, um, leasehold work, which I wanted to get out of desperately, and finally was able to find one or two uh, of our partners. Uh, who took over that mantle very, very, very successfully. So I was doing virtually everything um, that solicitors do. I spent time doing public company work, private company work, um, wills, trusts, a whole series of things, businesses, um, purchase and sale of businesses, assets, etc., etc. So it was a very, very generalized um, practice that I had, on top of the fact that I was chairman of the firm for the first, I think, 25 years. Uh, I was very, very fortunate that uh, Wolf Goodman, um, who was the senior partner, uh, was probably the most brilliant lawyer, uh, most brilliant person I was ever privileged to know. And... um, he became legend, uh, particularly in the tax and the state field. Hmm. So, explain the growth pangs of Goodman and Carr at that point, because it sounds like you were, you know, relatively small upstarts. You, you're <coughs> young lawyers, you know, not not uh, saying you didn't have a lot of good uh, expertise, but you you were relatively young, and and you start a firm that lands up growing into, I think at its peak, 165 lawyers or, or something like that. H- how was that, and how was it being a manager of all that? What you know, did it use up a lot well, of the time on the on the employment and management aspects? Indeed, it grew like topsy. Our work, I unashamedly say, was regarded as top-notch in all of the areas in which we operated. A great deal of credit for that goes to my dear late friend, Wolf Goodman. Um, we gathered certain people around us, and uh, without really setting out any real growth plan, uh, bit by bit, um, we added to the firm, um, and um, it became a very vibrant partnership. It had a peculiarity that no other firm in Toronto had at that time. That was we adhered to a compensation system known as the lockstep system. And that was a system whereby the partners shared in the profits of the firm in such a way that they were, each partner received the same amount of profits as his or her contemporary. And there was no battling 
uh, among partners uh, jockeying for position or jockeying to act for certain partners, that's pardon me, certain clients. Uh, it was all for one and one for all. And it is the only system uh, of compensation in law firms that I believe after many, many, many years a, of managing, B, of attending management uh, um, meetings of other law firms and uh, of uh, advisors. It's the, only, it's the only way that you can maintain uh, the situation. The extreme on the other end is that you eat what you kill. Um, which means that you're an assemblage of lawyers, um, you're sharing space, you're called partners, but really you're acting only for yourself, and um, and uh, that's a different style altogether. Yeah. The lockstep system we found, unfortunately, uh, held good only so long as those who were on, say, the executive committee, were able to know exactly what each partner was doing and that each partner was pulling his or her weight as best he or she could. One may be a, um, a grinder, as they say. Mm -hmm. uh, the other may be very, very adept at uh, winning clients. Right. Uh, whatever they were doing, they were doing their best and did not uh, shrink from that. So long as that occurred, and so long as you knew what each partner was doing, everything was well. But when you become so large that you really cannot tell what some partners are doing, unfortunately that system breaks down. I believe that in New York there is still one firm large firm that still works on a lockstep system, although, quite frankly, I haven't checked in the past few years, so I don't know. But that's what made the camaraderie and the relationship among all the partners of Goodman and Carr in those days. And I, I stress those days being the first 25 years. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the lockstep system was one of the reasons for the firm's ultimate failure, that you couldn't keep track of the partner's activities? Well, that's indirectly. Um, we went off the lockstep system because we couldn't satisfy ourselves that um, we knew what all the partners were doing and that they were each pulling their weight appropriately. And uh, just about concurrently with me giving up the um, chairmanship, um, the firm went on to uh, a modified system uh, that uh, closely approximated uh, what most firms do today um, by assessing uh, what each partner brought in, and what the partner was doing other than that, and uh, assigning points uh, based very much on that aspect of it. And then, um, as things uh, developed and management changed, uh, I think that um, that um, the eye was kept off the ball in terms of what we were, and um, management made some fatal errors at that time of bringing in certain uh, partners with whom they made special arrangements, and ultimately, the although the firm at the end uh, was still profitable, uh, the relationships had developed very badly, um, primarily caused by the new people who had come in, and um, and that ultimately led uh, to the dissolution of the firm after an attempt had been made uh, to um, unite uh, with another existing firm. Mm -hmm. very, very interesting, and, and also interesting about your salary structure. It's a bit like uh, socialism versus capitalism, how you, how you structured it. Well, there was, one, there was one lawyer that I remember who joined the firm as a fairly young associate, 
And uh, after about six months, he came to me and he said, Don, I think the firm is fabulous. The clients you have are amazing. The work you do is the kind of work I probably won't get anywhere else. But it's like living in a kibbutz and uh, I can't tolerate it. <laughs> I have to be compensated um, materially for extra things that I do. So um, I have to leave. Yeah. And he did. I know that. And just for those who don't know, a kibbutz is that initial socialist Israeli experiment. Uh, which uh, now, I guess for the better or for the worse, has, has largely evaporated. It doesn't quite exist as much as it used to. I don't think it's evaporated, but it's not the same as some of them were originally. Right, right. Just <laughs> just like your your young partners perhaps wanted to eat what they kill, uh, you know, at least Israeli society, the youngsters want some of that as well. But that's neither here nor there. I want to just touch on... Um, the estate planning that you did at Goodman and Carr, and perhaps more that your partner, uh, Mr. Goodman, did in leading up to and how you went through the Granovsky case. Um, just for those who don't know, I'll give a quick intro, and you feel free to uh, fill in the gaps afterwards if there are any. Um, the Granovsky is a case that established that you can use multiple wills in Ontario. And it was used in other jurisdictions in the past, but never in Ontario. And multiple wills is a strategy that people use to avoid probate tax, amongst other things. And uh, Gronofsky is the groundbreaking case which, uh, you know, approved it, allowed it, affirmed it. So leading up to it, I read one of your articles online how um, Mr. Goodman, your partner, just started doing this for clients and, and slowly, you know, they, they landed up passing away the clients and the primary will was probated, not the secondary will. And slowly but surely that was just accepted. Um, there, there wasn't any litigation surrounding that. So if I can just pause there a second, what, what was happening at that point? Did you feel that it was a big victory and were you sharing that victory with your colleagues to encourage them to follow suit? You have to understand the um, the milieu at that time. In those days, as you commented, really, um, we referred to probate. You took a will of somebody who passed away. You presented that will to the probate court, and the court issued letters probate, which certified that the person who was named in the letters probate was the appropriate executor or executors of the will, and that was a certification process, and therefore everybody who dealt with that estate uh, was aware of the fact that they were dealing with the proper uh, executors of the estate that had been certified by the probate um, situation. Yeah. Along came the NDP, only NDP government that Ontario had, and they tripled the rate of the probate fees. Uh-huh. Probate fees really had no basis for uh, the quantum because the court and the province had no more to do if they probated a $20 million estate uh, than they did if they probated a $500,000 estate or a $1,000 estate. Purely and simply, they certified something. And um, the whole concept of probate fees being based upon the gross value of the estate didn't make much sense and hasn't made much sense. But in any event, the NDP government um, tripled uh, the probate fees. And uh, science were in a tizzy, and the profession was upset um, and wondered what they were going to do. Now, you have to understand, my partner and friend, Wolf Goodman, um, was the essence of Williams. And he just sat down and worried through what might happen. And uh, he came to the conclusion that one could utilize what was already 
permitted and in, and in the law, namely a duplication of a will. At that time, we only used um, two wills if, for instance, a client had property in another country. Mm -hmm. We would prepare a will dealing solely with that uh, property in the other country because it was going to be dealt with under the law of that country and a will um, covering Ontario property. Right. Well, we'll fussed around with it. We came to the conclusion that it was going to be possible to divide up the asset of an individual between those assets which required the involvement of a third party in order to deal with the asset, and those assets that didn't require the involvement of a third party. For instance, if you owned a piece of real estate, it was registered in those days either in the registry office or the land titles office. Right. Consequently, to deal with that piece of real estate, you had to satisfy the master of title or the registrar that the will you were presenting was indeed the last will and testament of the individual wanted probate. Whereas, if um, the property was not registered in the name of the client, but for instance was held in the name of a corporation, and the corporation held that property simply as a trustee for the client, then upon the client's death, there would be no change in ownership, and therefore nothing had to be registered. Uh, so, bit by bit, he worked out uh, that one could divide the assets of an individual between what we call the primary will and a secondary will, the primary will receiving uh, those assets where a third party was necessary in order to deal with the asset, and the secondary will being one where no third party was involved. And as a result of that, uh, we were able, as a result of Wolf's uh, work, we were able to virtually deal with a state so that no probate fees uh, were paid, nothing was probated. That's since been changed. We no longer talk officially about probate. We talk about a certificate of an estate trustee with a will. Right. That um, we thought would work. We never knew that it would, because uh, some of the uh, some of the statutes and some of the forms re refer to the estate of the deceased, and there was only one estate. So we uh, weren't sure it was going to work. However, um, the first of uh, our clients who had that kind of a situation with a primary and secondary will passed away. And we took only the primary will uh, to have it probated. We held our breath, and um, it was accepted. It happened a second time, and it was accepted. And then, because this is a publicly known case, I can, as you have mentioned, the name Gronowski. When we took the late Mr. Gronowski's will uh, to have only the primary will probated, uh, the surrogate court judge said, are you not really cheating the Ontario government? Uh, I will give you, I will probate the will, but on condition that you bring a motion on notice to the Ontario government uh, for a decision to be made as to whether it is satisfactory only to probate uh, the primary will and not the secondary will. And that application was brought. We succeeded. I think two or three of our lawyers argued the case, including Wolf. And um, we got a decision that was satisfactory, and uh, it was that we could probate just the one will. The Ontario government then appealed, and uh, the appeal sat there untouched for almost a year. There was a rule that uh, you had to perfect an appeal within a year, and close to the end of the year, evidently, the court was in touch with the Ontario government, asking them either to proceed uh, with the case, the appeal, or to abandon the appeal. I received a call from counsel for the Ontario government asking me if we were prepared um, to not ask for costs be awarded against the government. They would abandon the appeal if we would not ask for costs. 
That's a great deal. I don't have to tell you or your listeners what decision was made. Quickly, there was a decision made to abandon any claim for cost, and the Ontario government withdrew the appeal. Subsequent to Janowski, many court forms were amended, and so as to take into account the concept of there being dual wills. I shouldn't call them dual wills. Uh, I should call them wills, one of which only was probated, one of which was not. Mm -hmm. So I want to pause for a moment at that part where the two initial primary wills were submitted and accepted. Uh, to probate, they were granted a certificate of appointment. Was that a, a sigh of relief and a, a moment of victory, if you will, or was it only after the the um, appeal ultimately got dismissed that you felt like a, a sense of victory? No, we we felt that we were correct in the first instance, and in the first two situations where there was no question asked. And the probate was granted on the primary will only. Um, we were very satisfied that uh, what Wolf had hoped, what we had hoped, was in fact the case. And um, we we um, we were very confident. Um, we by that time had made known to uh, a lot of our uh, confreres uh, what we were doing. And a lot of firms had uh, taken up the idea, although many of them were very worried that if push came to shove, it wouldn't be allowed. Well, you've got to be uh, brave to take such steps. <laughs> well, you have to. Uh, without, you have to do so without uh, jeopardizing your client. And in view of the fact that the worst that could have happened was the client. Uh, client's estate would have to pay probate fees, which it would in any event have had to pay. We weren't gambling with the client. Right, absolutely. Uh, a cautious step. Um, and it really made a big difference, like I said, changing the way we practice today. So It is. It is a, a major difference. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, on, on a different note a little bit, I want to ask you uh, generally what kind of uh, advice you would give a, a freshly minted, ambitious law school grad and uh, perhaps what advice should they ignore? Well, from time to time I do see young people who ask me that kind of situation and um, I, I merely try to say to them that they're going into a profession um, which requires, demands the highest the highest kind of value um, that it is challenging. One has to remember constantly uh, that you are there to search the right or benefit uh, a client who comes to you. That it has to be done within a structure of what is moral as well as legal. Um, that one uh, has difficulty um, while practicing law. Um, one has difficulty in doing anything else, although, as uh, many young people have seen, lots of lawyers uh, have made lots of money outside of the practice of law. Uh, for me, it has always been a situation where I can really do nothing other than practice, that a great deal of dispassionate decisions have to be made. And that's one of the reasons why, unlike some other people, uh, and I am not critical of this at all, my own, my own personality, I do not like to act for friends, and I do not like to make friends of my clients. I have to be impassionate uh, when I am acting for somebody and not let another kind of relationship interfere. Mm -hmm. Same time, uh, that means that you have to uh, abjure becoming involved in any way, shape, or form with a client in any business, uh, or even uh, holding shares in a public company that the client deals. The result is that you make charities. You may miss loads of opportunities that otherwise would be there, but that's the decision that you make, and that and that's the um, satisfaction that one gets out uh, of uh, practice.
Thank you for that uh, inspiring answer to young grads. And, and this may be the same answer. There may be some overlap or, or it may be different. And I'm, I'm asking because I'm an estates lawyer myself. The question is, what makes a good estates lawyer? Is there anything uh, specific there? Well, first of all, of course, um, it goes without saying you have to know the law. Uh, and that in, in and of itself is difficult because today so much uh, turns on facts. Right. And um, I do not pretend uh, to be as adept at uh, income tax as somebody who uh, boards to advise clients on, um, on estates should be. I've always had the good fortune from Goodman and Carr days state to have um, at my side people who are extremely adept at tax and at the vagaries of tax. Uh, consequently, uh, I can bring to bear uh, that, that aspect of it. But I think the overweening situation, apart from that technical circumstance, which is very important, is to have and be able to transmit to the client that you have a sympathetic feeling, an understanding of what families go through, uh, an understanding of how uh, people regard their assets, particularly their business assets, and what relationships are and what they can become. Um, either good or bad, and to have that ability to empathize uh, with the clients, I think, is a very, very important part of practicing in the estate and trust field. Right. I could not agree more. I, I just want to ask a follow-up question about your preference not to work with friends, if you will, because... You know, as starting out, that's really the advice that they give you is, is start with family and friends. And the question is, if a, a, there's a difference between being a, a barrister who, who litigates and a solicitor who's just kind of helping people with transactional type work, whether it's closing a real estate deal or uh, preparing a will for them, does that still apply, uh, your, your policy? Well, it's always applied to me, but by the same token, I'm fully aware of the fact that I had a very easy and exceptional uh, kind of introduction to my practicing, namely that I stepped, I attempted to step into the shoes of my uncle who already had a, a brilliant practice, uh, one in which there was deep understanding and relationship with clients. He was like a family doctor and I was able, I believe, to assume some of that mantle. So it's easy for me to make that statement because I didn't have the difficulty that you probably have and many, 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 many others have, namely that the, they don't have a ready-made practice to walk into and they have to establish something from scratch. Right. And under those circumstances, of course, different circumstances obtain, different, different uh, situations obtain. And so my... Um, lofty ideals, you might say, um, may be okay, uh, and I may have had the, the the comfort of being able to apply them, uh, whereas somebody starting out fresh and not having that base uh, with which to work doesn't have the good, good fortune to do that. Yeah. Okay, I appreciate that. Some some uh, flexibility there. Um, I have a, just a few more questions, and this is really with uh, trying to uh, you know help the younger lawyer in mind. Um, you know, new, new grads and uh, first few years of practice, and perhaps even beyond that, you'll see what I mean. How do you maintain a work-life balance? It's something that I have never really examined. Um, I suppose it's fair to say that maybe my family has suffered uh, because I spent not only great chunks of time in practice, but I also spent great chunks of time in community service mm -hmm. uh, and in leading many community organizations. Therefore, I think, and I've often thought about it, and I've often echoed it to some of my family, I think my family may have suffered. Um, and uh, I regret that. That does not mean that I have a distant relationship with my family. I don't. I think I have a very close relationship. But I think I should have spent much more time um, with all of them. 
uh, for different reasons for each. Mm-hmm. And um, therefore, it's a balancing it's a balancing act. And I think it's very, very individual and personal. Mm-hmm. What may work for one person certainly isn't going to work for another person. Absolutely. It's about finding, trying to find your personal balance. Uh, I'll ask a, another question, if I may. It's what is your best investment to date? And, and it could be financial, but oftentimes it's, it's not financial. It, it could be anything. Um, do, you, do you have something? You mentioned all your community work. Um, you know, any, anything that comes to mind? That's a very hard thing to answer. I don't think one can use the word investment as uh, broadly as uh, you're trying to use it. I think we do separate um, for ourselves the material things that we have endeavored to build up uh, over the years, pragmatically, and for the old, the old years, and the other kinds of investment that immediately remind me of investment in people, my family, my children, my yes. grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. <laughs> yes. So it's a very, very difficult thing to say. It's a balancing act, uh, and it's a delicate balancing act. Right. And I have no idea how I have been spared, but I've had the longevity that I have, uh, no idea whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for it. I can't imagine myself at the time of practice that I am, at the time of life that I am. And I know not how it has happened. Well, you have a, a practice and a career that is one to emulate. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask you one more question because we're we're almost out of time here. And uh, sorry if it's a tough one, but uh, I'll leave it. I'll leave it as the last one. Uh, that is, if there was a big billboard with millions of people to see it, is there any quote or message that you'd like those millions of people to see? I I can think of several different things. Uh, I suppose I'll give you several billboards if you want. If I, if I, I suppose if I had one thing, I suppose it would be true to yourself. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope our listeners have as well. And thank you for your time. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I don't know whether it was worth your while spending the time, uh, but I'm deeply appreciative. It most certainly was. Hello and welcome back to Speak to a Lawyer with me, your host, Avi Charney. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it to the end. If you need to reach me, I'm at avi at charneylegal.ca or my website, charneylegal.ca. I look forward to having you join us on the next episode of Speak to a Lawyer.